This section of scripture this morning that we want to read and consider with the Lord's help is found in the epistle of Paul to the Ephesians, uh, chapter 1. This morning we'll look at verses 1 and 2, and you can find this on page 1,342 in the Pew Bible. Having introduced ourselves last week to the epistle uh, that Paul wrote to the Ephesians, uh, we want to begin making our way through it section by section, beginning this morning with verses 1 and 2. So hear now together the reading of the Word of God. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus far our reading of the Word of God this morning and congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, especially for those of you who have come to the years of maturity, you and I have been privileged many, many, many times to hear what we know as the salutation in a corporate worship service. Uh, most of us, we can't remember the first time we heard a salutation given to us because uh, we were most likely uh, in our mother's arms or perhaps on our mother's knees as we heard a gospel minister greet us in behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ by saying, grace, mercy, and peace be unto you. But there is a danger that we've heard those words so many times that we now hear them without hardly a thought. I don't know what exactly happened in your personal life this past week, and I don't know exactly what fears maybe you have within your mind or your soul, what causes of anxiety you may have as you anticipate the week that lies ahead. I don't even know what your Sunday morning was, was like. Perhaps it was a relaxed Sunday morning, but maybe it was a frenzied Sunday morning. Perhaps you came into the corporate worship service spiritually relaxed, but perhaps you came into this corporate worship service a spiritually razzled. But then the triune God, the eternal God, the infinitely glorious God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, says unto you as individual Christians and unto us as a Christian congregation, grace and peace be unto you. I remember when I was a young boy, my mother would often listen to John MacArthur. His radio program was entitled, Grace to You. I can still hear the opening music. Grace to you. And I believe if we as a congregation would, would fully grasp the implication of this statement, it would be absolutely transformative. Grace and peace to us from God. Not only from the infinite God, but also to us, creatures of the dust, and fallen creatures at that. 
by nature, rebels against God. You can, of course, it's by inspiration, but you can well understand why the Apostle Paul was moved in verse 3 to say, blessed be the God and Father. What else should follow? Grace to you and peace. Well, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We want to, and we've purposely only read these first two verses so that we can hone in, as it were, upon uh, the depths of God's mercy, of His grace, of His love towards us, His people, this morning by considering our theme, an apostolic greeting to the church. And we'll notice that this apostolic greeting, first of all, includes the head of the church, and then secondly, includes a description of the church, and then thirdly, includes the blessings of the church. So, we consider this morning an apostolic greeting to the church, noticing the head of the church, the description of the church, and the blessings of the church. It's informative, but it's also very expected. If you know something about the Apostle Paul, and if you know something about all of the apostles, those men who were chosen by Christ, those men who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, those men who were directly commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ, because that's what apostle means, to be formally sent and commissioned, these men focused upon the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In passing, we just note that the office of an apostle was an extraordinary and temporary office, so there are no longer in existence apostles. We say this because from time to time, uh, this idea pops up uh, that there is the continuation or perhaps the renewal of this office of apostles. So, some years ago, it became somewhat popular, this movement known as the New Apostolic Church. And individuals of leadership within this sectarian movement claimed that they were apostles, and they especially appealed to young people of the Christian church and said, your, your, your parents and your elders and your ministers, you don't you shouldn't listen to them. We are apostles. Listen only to us. Well, any well-grounded, reformed young person and older person should have been able to very quickly recognize the error of such a statement. You claim to be an apostle? Well, the apostolic office was temporary, and it had ceased. But in the days of the writing of Ephesians, of course, the apostolic office was still functioning. But the point that we want to especially make is that the apostles were always centered upon the head of the church, and that head of the church is none other than Jesus Christ Himself. Jesus Christ is the one only head of the church. Now, of course, with that statement, we refute uh, the Roman Catholic error that would make uh, the Pope the head of the church, or that would pretend that the bishop of the church in Rome is the head of the church, but we also, with that statement that Christ is the only head of the church, we also go against a common misunderstanding uh, that thinks that the church is governed by the will of the people. The church is not a democracy, but rather a theocracy underneath the exclusive headship 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Apostle Paul, he writes, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He's going to write an epistle of spiritual instruction and spiritual encouragement, uh, but the only credentials that he gives is that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so you'll notice the connection immediately to the person and to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul could have, hypothetically, he could have said, the Apostle Paul, schooled in the very best of schools, with a very prestigious pedigree, but he doesn't. He just simply emphasizes his unique relationship to Christ because Christ is the head of the church, and it is by the Word of Christ, as that Word is mediated or as it is channeled to us through the inspired authors of Scriptures, it is that Word of Christ alone that is authoritative for the Christian church. Notice that Paul is an apostle by the will of God. And we just point this out because other passages in Ephesians will emphasize this. If you were to ask the Apostle Paul about the origination of any one of his spiritual experiences or any aspect of his spiritual authority, it would completely be directed back to the will of God. So why am I here? Why are you here? Why do we find ourselves as part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? The answer is because of the will of God. And at the same time, that is both humbling, but also reassuring. I am not here, you are not here, because we made ourselves to be better than others. I am not here, and you are not here, because there was something in us that God foresaw that made us objects of His favor. By the will of God. Humbling, but also reassuring. Notice the importance that the Apostle Paul lays to this head of the church, Jesus Christ. In Scripture, of course, every word and all of the words are breathed out by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit never gives unnecessary repetition. But if you look at these first two verses, you'll notice that Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, or the Lord Jesus Christ, in two verses are used three times. It, it, it's almost, and we don't want to detract at all from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but it's almost as if Paul's pen, if we can speak that way, and we understand that most likely he used an amanuensis or a scribe, but it's almost as if Paul's pen could not write a sentence without including Jesus Christ. So this again, and we'll try to emphasize this as we read, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see how what, what we call Christocentric, how, how centrally focused the Apostle Paul is upon the person of Jesus Christ. And, and Ephesians is 
known as an ecclesiastical epistle. Now, all that simply means is that in the epistle to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul especially deals with the doctrines of the church and the duties of the church. But he begins, he doesn't just say, now, now here's what you have to do as the church. A little bit more of this and a little bit less of that. He begins, if you really want to understand what the church is, you need to understand its relationship to Jesus Christ and the centrality of Jesus Christ. And and that gives us this point uh, of reflection and application. How, How focused upon Christ are we as individual persons and as families, but also as a congregation? I well remember an elderly man of my former congregation. Uh, he's passed from this earthly life now into the full experience of eternal life. Uh, but he would go down, uh, as many elderly, mature persons do, go down to Florida for the winter months. Uh, and there was a, a place there in Florida that he, along with many other Protestants, would gather, Protestants of various denominations. Uh, and as Protestants would often do, they would begin to discuss theology and debate doctrine, and at times those debates would become quite intense. And then with a twinkle in his eye, he said to me, and whenever they start debating and arguing, I just ask them, tell me what you think about Jesus Christ. And he said, you know, some grow awfully quiet. Oh, theories of common grace, they would debate those. Differences, minor differences in church polity, they would debate those and and talk for hours. Tell me what you think about Jesus Christ. And some of them would grow silent. If that's us, and I'm not implying that it is. I'm just asking a way of self-reflection. If that's us, something's wrong. Are we mesmerized spiritually as a congregation with the person of Jesus Christ? Well, that is something about the head of the church. What then of the description of the church in our second point? And, and I believe... I firmly believe that there is a certain logical progression in Paul's thought, and hopefully that is reflected to some extent uh, even in our outline. If we understand who the head of the church is, and if we understand the vital relationship that the body of the church has with the head, then we understand that the description of the church has to connect to the head of the church. And when we think of who Christ is, we deal here with the very being of God. And when you think of God and His fullness of attributes, He is the holy God, infinitely holy. And so it's only, you might say, legitimate that the Apostle Paul identifies the church by emphasizing its holiness to the saints. Now, now saints are not some special, unique category within the church. For example, you know, Mary and Peter and Paul 
Oh, the, 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 the saints are all of the true living members of the universal church. Saints simply means those who are consecrated or those who are set apart, those who are sanctified. And, and, and so the very, the very word for church, ecclesia, called out, separated out, and now, now, yes, we're not separated out by way of geographical distance. It's not as if we retreat in some monastic type of a lifestyle and, and just circle the wagons and say we'll have nothing to do with this world until Christ comes back. But we are to understand that our identity is that we are saints, that we have been called out spiritually by the redemptive work of God. And this, of course, was foreshadowed even as Israel was brought out of Egypt. And and we can ask ourselves also uh, that, that biblical truth that was so powerfully summarized with the understanding of the antithesis in a former day. Do we understand what the antithesis is? Also, practically speaking, that, that we as the Christian church are sanctified, are called out, that we are not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but that we are be to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And, and certainly we, we desire to be light, and we desire to be salt, and we desire to have the opportunity in our culture and in our community to give a reason for the hope that we have, but we dare not try to water down our identity as saints. We dare not try to uh, appeal to our culture by trying to imitate our culture. You know, sometimes older ministers, they, they fall into this trap, and I, if I ever, if I do and if I ever do, please, please, please call me out on it. But I, but I think there's probably persons in my own home who will call me out on this. The danger is this, you know, you, you get a, a middle-aged minister or an older minister, and, and he feels the, the need to be relatable to the younger crowd. And so he, he tries to be a teenager. You know, so, so maybe he goes out and he buys a pair of skinny jeans. And, and he, he finds out what the hip, cool footwear for teenagers is, and he buys a pair of those shoes. And he says, oh, yeah, boy, that necktie really dates me, makes me look old. I'll do away with that, all to be relatable to the, to the youth. And maybe if he has hair, you know, he, he, he follows the latest hairstyles. And the young people here, I'm sure many of you can testify to this. You see right through it. And internally you just laugh. You go, this guy's just a joke. Is the world saying that about the evangelical church? They're trying to be just like us. They're, they're imitating our, our nightclubs and our dance halls with their worship services. They've got the same lights. They've got the same instruments. They've got the same whole pathos going. (laughs) What a joke. Called to be saints. Called to be holy, set apart. 
also in moral purity. And we just introduce this concept because also further passages in Ephesians will unfold it in much greater detail. The church is holy, sanctified, set apart, consecrated by the will of God, and therefore the church is to be holy. We dare not take our moral cues from a fallen culture. We must take our stance on moral issues, upon truth, and what is good based upon the Word of God. Not only is the church holy, but you'll notice that the church is also faithful. Faithful, but don't forget the phrase there, in Christ Jesus. And, and there's some debate among commentators whether this means that they, that they have faith, that they have a knowledge of Jesus Christ and a certain trust in Jesus Christ, or is the emphasis upon the faithfulness that they display by continuing on day by day, month by month, year by year in the faith? And, and you can perhaps say that it's just a, a weak cop-out on my part. I, I don't think it is. I've analyzed uh, as much as I'm able uh, the, the grammar, and, and I think it's both. And the Apostle Paul and again, of course, underneath the inspiration, he had a wonderful way of doing this. It's the faithful, continual exercise of the faith. Faithful in the exercise of faith in Christ Jesus. Being faithful in believing, in a knowledge and in a trust in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, the Apostle Paul uh, was the great, you might say, apostle who testified to the sovereignty of God in salvation. But he never allowed that emphasis to minimize or to detract from the exhortation to press on in the faith. And so we also, not to minimize the absolute sovereignty of God in salvation, but the sovereignty of God in salvation evidences itself with the continual generation of faith. And here I borrow the Pauline analogy, you might say, of a race. And I know some of you young people, you know, you run cross-country. And some of us older people, we try to run, and some of us are better at it than others, but if you're going to run a 5K race just over three miles, yeah, you have to start the race. And I'm not saying that the start isn't completely unnecessary or doesn't really come into play. But you young people who do cross-country, you know what will happen. If I line up right next to you, and if I begin running as fast as I can which I really admit is not very fast, but I'm just sprinting, you know what's going to happen. I'm not going to be able to sustain that. But let's say I, I stop 100 yards in, and I go, wow, that was an amazing fast 100 yards. I'll go sit down in the bleachers now. Well, where am I going to place in the race? Nowhere. 
And the application is this, congregation. Perseverance is vital. Spiritual perseverance is vital. Day after day, week after week, month after month. It's not enough just to begin well. You have to begin well, but that's not enough. You have to press on by the grace and the mercy of our God to the end. And to motivate this faithfulness, you'll notice in our third point there is the description of the blessings. The church lives in holiness and in faith and a faithfulness in the exercise of faith as she receives these blessings of grace and of peace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What is grace? We want to be clear about this. Grace is undeserved, unmerited, unearned. Undeserved, unmerited, unearned. If you think of grace and if you think of any type of deserving of it, Sadly, you do not understand what grace is. If, if there's any part of us that says, well, I think I'm a good candidate for grace because I am this or because I am that. Oh, we may speak about the doctrines of grace. But you know who really understood grace? The repentant thief on the cross. When you come into your kingdom, remember me. Who really understood grace? The publican in the temple, standing afar off, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. These persons understood grace. Do you understand grace? God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Grace is the unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor of God in Jesus Christ. But grace is God's favor in a spiritual power that transforms the soul and therefore transforms the person, transforms the soul, changes the person, that they then pass from death to life. And it's by virtue of this transformative grace that faith is produced. And it is by virtue of the same transformative grace that faithfulness is produced. And it is by this same transformative grace that one's status or state is also transformed from being alienated from God to being reconciled to God, from being a stranger of God to being the, the friend of God, from being, theologically speaking, underneath the covenant of works to being underneath the covenant of grace. 
so that then there is the the reality of peace. And now when we think of peace, so often we immediately want to go to the subjective experience of peace, of a, of a spiritual quietness. But peace ultimately is an objective state that I am right with God because of the grace of God, because of the will of God, because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the lines of Romans 5 verse 1, therefore having been what? Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have that peace if we are justified, if we are in Jesus Christ. Therefore, having that peace, we can then experience the reality of that peace. So we can come in on a Sunday morning and we can think about the week that gone's past with all of its difficulties, all of its burdens, all of its trials, all of its anxieties, fears, disappointments, whatever it may be. And we can, we can, according to the Word of God, we can still our soul and we can say, yes, last week may be what it may be. And, and, and next week, I don't know what it may bring. Broken relationships, difficult circumstances. But this I know, by virtue of the will of God, by virtue of His grace, I have peace with God. Can you say that this morning? Well, the question is very simple. Are you in Christ by faith? You know, humanity seeks for peace in all sorts of circumstances, in all sorts of ways. And it's sad, it's disheartening, it's troublesome to see humanity run this way and that way, looking for an ever-exclusive sense of peace. You will hear people say, if only I can get this, if only I can do that, if only I can be this, then I'll have peace. No, you won't. The more you accumulate, the more you'll have a lack of peace. If you don't find your peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so today also there is a command to find the rest by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's also my wonderful opportunity to testify to you as a Christian congregation that your life, it may be very similar to the experience of the disciples when they were on the tumultuous sea of Galilee with wind and waves. The water may be filling up the boat of your life. But if the Master, Lord Jesus Christ, is there, you have peace. You have peace because of His grace. You have peace because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have peace because you are justified. And no one and nothing can ever, ever, ever change that. Thanks be to God. Amen.